Section 8 of the Journal of Lewis and Clark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J.K. Kamen. The Journal of Lewis and Clark by Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. Chapter 6. Indian Treatment. Their Dread of the Smallpox. Inattention to Future Wants. Evil Spirit. Murder. Indians Restrained from Murder by Being Threatened with the Smallpox. Friendship. Indian Prayer. Death of a Comrade. Danger from Wild Beasts. Encounter with a Snake. Similarity in the Physical Organization of Indians of Different Tribes. Cause of Their Color. Hatred of Beards. Dress. Boring the Nose and Ears. Decorating the head with silver plates. Huts or lodges. Movable houses. Beds. Utensils. Food. Mode of cooking meat. Devotional dance before and after eating. Mode of producing fire. Apparent want of affection. Fortitude. Manner of courting. Memory. Respect for old age. Money. Physicians, mode of curing the fever, etc., etc. The treatment that we received from the Indians during nearly three years that we were with them was very kind and hospitable, except the ill treatment that we received from the Sioux tribe, who several times made attempts to stop us, and we should have been massacred had we not terrified them from their murderous intention by threatening them with the smallpox in such a manner as would kill the whole tribe of them. Nothing could be more horrible to them than the bare mention of this fatal disease. It was communicated to them by the Americans, and spread from tribe to tribe with an unabated pace, until it extended itself across the continent. Quote, this fatal infection spread around with a baneful rapidity, which no flight could escape, and with a fatal effect that nothing could resist. It destroyed with its pestilential breath whole families and tribes, and the horrid sense presented to those who had the melancholy an affecting opportunity of beholding it, a combination of the dead and dying, and such as to avoid the horrid fate of their friends around them, prepared to disappoint the plague of its prey by terminating their own existence. The habits and lives of those devoted people who provide not to-day for the wants of to-morrow must have heightened the pains of such an affliction by leaving them not only without remedy but even without alleviation. But nothing was left them but to submit in agony and despair. To aggravate the picture, if aggravation was possible, may be added the sight of the helpless child beholding the putrid carcass of its beloved parents dragged by the wolves from their huts, who were invited by the stench, and with a ferocious ferocity satiate their hunger on the mangled corpse, or in the same manner serve the dog with food from the body of his once beloved master. Nor was it uncommon for the father of a family, whom the infection had just reached, to call his family around him, to represent the sufferings and cruel fate from the influence of some evil spirit who was preparing to extirpate their race and to invite them to baffle death with all its horrors with their own weapons and at the same time if their hearts failed in this necessary act he was himself ready to perform the deed of mercy with his own hand as the last act of his affection and instantly follow them to the chambers of death Close quote. footnote a western traveller End footnote. 
The Indians, being destitute of physicians, living on animal food, plunging themselves into cold water on the first discovery of the disease, rendered it generally mortal. While we were at Fort Mandan, the Sioux robbed several of our party when they were returning to the fort with the fruits of an excursion after game, and murdered several of the Mandan tribe in cold blood without provocation while reposing on the bosom of friendship. On hearing of this massacre, Captain Clark and the greater part of us volunteered to avenge the murder, but were deterred by not receiving succor from the Mandan warriors, who declined to avenge the outrage committed on them. The probability of their not enlisting was that they were afraid of the superior number of the Sioux to warrant an engagement. Soon after this massacre, we received authentic intelligence that the Sioux had it in contemplation, if their threats were true, to murder us in the spring, but were prevented from making the attack by our threatening to spread the smallpox with all its horrors among them. They, knowing that it first originated among the white people, and having heard of inoculation and the mode of keeping the infection in vials, which they had but an imperfect idea of, that barely a threat filled them with horror and was sufficient to deter them from their resolute and bloody purpose. This stratagem may appear insignificant to the reader, but was of the greatest consequence to us, for to it alone we owe not only the fate of the expedition, but our lives. Most of the tribes of Indians that we became acquainted with, except the Sioux, after being introduced by our interpreter and finding that our intentions were friendly towards them, never failed of greeting us with many tokens of their friendly disposition. Soon after our interview we were invited to smoke the calumet of peace and to partake freely of their venison. The women and children in particular were not wanting in showing tokens of friendship by endeavoring to make our stay agreeable. On our first meeting they generally held a council, as they term it, when their chief delivers a, quote, talk, close quote, in which they give their sentiments respecting their new visitors, which were filled with professions of friendship, and often were very eloquent, and abounded with sublime and figurative language. When we departed after taking leave, they would often put up a prayer, of which the following is a sample, which was put up for us by a mandan, quote, that the great spirit would favor us with smooth water, with a clear sky by day, and a bright starlight by night, that we might not be presented with the red hatchet of war, but that the great pipe of peace might ever shine upon us, as the sun shines in an unclouded day, and that we might be overshadowed by the smoke thereof, that we might have sound sleep, and that the bird of peace might whisper in our ears pleasant dreams, that the deer might be taken by us in plenty, and that the great spirit would take us home in safety to our squaws and children." These prayers were generally made with great fervency, often smiting with great vehemence their hands upon their breast, their eyes fixed in adoration towards heaven. In this manner they would continue their prayers until we were out of sight. In the fore part of autumn we experienced slight typhus indispositions, caused by great vicissitudes of weather, which at times were very damp. Our affectionate companion, Sergeant Floyd, was seized with a severe asthenic disease of which he fell a victim. He was seized with an acute pain in his intestines, accompanied with a great suppression of the pulmonary function. Every effort that our situation allowed was in vain used for his recovery. We buried him in the most decent manner that our circumstance would admit. He was universally lamented by us. Several times many of our party were in imminent danger of being devoured by wild beasts of prey, but happily we escaped. 
Frequently we were annoyed by a kind of light-colored bear, of which the country near the head of the Missouri abounds. After being attacked, they give no quarter, but rush with great fury towards their enemy. One of our party shot at one of them, and wounded him. The bear, instead of being intimidated by the smart of the wound, was stimulated into rage, and rushed with great fury to devour the assailant, who saved his life by running headlong down a steep precipice that formed the bank of the river but was severely bruised by the precipitant retreat. The following narrative of an encounter with a snake is told by a companion whose veracity can be relied on. I will give it in his own words as he related it in a letter to his friend. Quote, Sometime, close quote, says he, quote, before we reached Fort Mandan, while I was out on an excursion of hunting, one of the greatest monsters that ever shocked the mind with horror was presented to my sight. When passing deliberately in a forest that bordered on a prairie, I heard a rustling in the bushes. I leaped towards the object, delighted with the prospect of acquiring game. But on proceeding a few paces further, my blood was chilled with horror by the appearance of a serpent of enormous size. On discovering me, he immediately erected his head to a great height. His color was of a yellower hue than the spots of a rattlesnake, and on the top of his back were spots of a reddish color. His eyes emitted fire, his tongue darted, as though he menaced my destruction. He was evidently in the attitude of springing at me when I leveled my rifle at him, but probably owing to my consternation I only wounded him. But the explosion of the gun and the wound turned to flight the awful enemy. Perhaps you may think that my fright has magnified the description. I can candidly aver that he was in bulk half as large as a middle-sized man. Quote. In the Indian tribes there is so great a similarity in their stature, color, government, and religious tenets that it will be requisite for perspicuity to rank them under one general head, and when there is a contrast in course of the description it will be mentioned. The Indians are all, except the snake Indians, tall in stature, straight and robust, it is very seldom they are deformed, which has given rise to the supposition that they put to death their deformed children, which is not the case. Their skin is of a copper color, their eyes large, black, and of a bright and sparkling color, indicative of a subtle and discerning mind. Their hair is of the same color, and prone to grow long, straight, and seldom or never curled. Their teeth are large and white. I never observed any decayed among them, which makes their breath as sweet as the air they exhale. The women are about the stature of the English women, and much inclined to corpulency, which is seldom the case with the other sex. I shall not enter into a discussion about the cause of their hue. I shall barely mention the suppositions that are made respecting it. Some have asserted that it is derived principally from their anointing themselves with fat in the summer season to prevent profuse perspiration, and this, combined with the influence of the sun, has given the tincture of their complexion. To support the hypothesis, they assert, that the repeated above-mentioned causes give color to the parent who procreates his own likeness until at length it is entailed on posterity. But notwithstanding this curious reasoning, others are of opinion that the hand of the Creator gave the reddish hue to the Indians, the sable color to the African, and that of white to the civilized nations. They esteem a beard exceedingly unbecoming, and take great pains to get rid of it, nor is there ever any to be perceived on their faces, except when they grow old and become inattentive to their appearance. Every crinose excrescence on other parts of their body 
is held in as great abhorrence by them, and both sexes are equally careful to extirpate it, in which they often employ much time. The Palo Tipalors, Serpentine, Mandan, and other interior tribes of Indians pluck them out with bent pieces of hard wood formed into a kind of nippers made for that purpose, while those that have a communication with Americans or Europeans procure from them wire which they ingeniously make into an instrument resembling a screw, which will take so firm a hold of the beard that with a sudden twitch they extirpate them out by the roots when considerable blood never fails to flow. The dress of the Indians varies according to the tribe that they belong to, but in general it is very commodious not to encumber them in pursuing the chase or their enemy. Those that inhabit the Missouri I have often seen, in cold weather, without any apparel to screen themselves from the inclemency of the weather. The lower rank of the Palotipalers and Clatsops wear nothing in the summer season, but a small garment about their hips, which is either manufactured out of bark or skins, and which would vie with, if not excel, any European manufacture, being diversified with different colors, which gave it a gray appearance. Their chiefs are generally dressed in robes that are made out of small skins, which takes several hundred for a garment, of different colors, neatly tanned, which they hang loosely over their shoulders. In deep snows they wear skins which entirely cover their legs and feet, and almost answer for breeches, being held up by strings tied to the lower part of the waist. Their bodies in the winter season are covered with different kinds of skin, which are tanned with the fur on, which they wear next to the skin. Those of the men who wish to appear more gay than others pluck out the greatest part of their hair, leaving only small locks as fancy dictates, on which are hung different kinds of quills and feathers of elegant plumage, superbly painted. The Sioux and Osage, who traffic with the Americans, wear some of our apparel, such as shirts and blankets. The former they cannot bear tied at the wristbands and collar, and the latter they throw loosely over their shoulders. Their chiefs dress very gay. About their heads they wear all kinds of ornaments that can well be bestowed upon them, which are curiously wrought, and in the winter long robes of the richest fur that trail on the ground. In the summer there is no great peculiarity, only what the higher rank wear is excessively ornamented. The Indians paint their heads and faces yellow, green, red, and black, which they esteem very ornamental. They also paint themselves when they go to war, but the method they make use of on this occasion differs from that which they wear merely as a decoration. The Chippeway young men, who are emulous of excelling their companions in finery, slit the outward rim of both ears, at the same time they take care not to separate them entirely, but leave the flesh thus cut, still untouched at both extremities, around this spongy substance, from the upper to the lower part. They twist brass wire till the weight draws the amputated rim in a bow of five or six inches diameter, and draws it down almost to the shoulder. This decoration is esteemed gay and becoming. It is also a custom among them to bore their noses and wear in them pendants of different sorts. Shells are often worn, which when painted are reckoned very ornamental. The dress of the Indians who inhabit the borders of Louisiana is for their legs a kind of stocking, either of skins or cloth. These are sewed up as much as possible in the shape of their leg, so as to admit of being drawn on and off. The edges of the stuff on which they are composed are left annexed to the seams, and hang loose about the breadth of a hand and this part which is placed on the outside of the leg is generally ornamented with lace and ribbons, and often with embroidery and porcupine quills variously colored. The hunters from Louisiana find these stockings much more convenient than any others. Their shoes are made of the skins of deer or elk, 
These, after being dressed with the hair on, are cut into shoes, and fashioned so as to be easy to their feet and convenient for walking. The edges around the ankle are decorated with pieces of brass or tin, fixed around a leather string about an inch long, which, being placed very thick, make a delightsome noise when they walk or dance. The dress of the women in the summer season consists only of a petticoat that does not reach down to their knees. In the winter they wear a shift made of skins which answers a very good purpose when they stand erect, as it is sufficiently low, but when they bend over they often put modesty to the blush. Their feet and legs are covered similarly to the other sex. Most of the female Indians who dwell on the west side of the Mississippi, near its confluence with the Missouri, decorate their heads by enclosing their hair in plates of silver. It is a costly ornament, and is made use of by the highest rank only. Those of the lower rank make use of the bones, which they manufacture to resemble that of silver. The silver made use of is formed into thin plates of about four or five inches broad, in several of which they confine their hair. That plate which is nearest the head is of considerable width, the next narrower and made so as to pass a little way under the other, and gradually tapering till they get to a very inconsiderable magnitude. This proves to be of great expense, for they often wear it on the back side of the head, extending to the full length of their hair, which is commonly very long. The women of every nation generally paint a spot against each about the size of a crown piece. Some of them paint their hair, and sometimes a spot on the middle of the forehead. The Indians have no fixed habitations when they are hunting, but build their houses where conveniency presents, which are made so small that it obliges the inhabitants to grope about in them being so low as not to admit one to stand erect, and are without windows. Those that are built for permanent residence are much more substantial. They are built of logs and bark, large enough to contain several apartments. Those built for the chiefs are often very elegant. That of the chief warrior of the Mahas is at least sixty feet in circumference, and lined with furs and painting. The furs are of various colors, many of which I had never seen before, and were extremely beautiful. The variety in color formed a contrast that much added to its elegance. The paintings were elegant, and would adorn the dwellings of an opulent European prince, but the houses of the common people are very different. They have also movable houses which they use for fishing, and sometimes for hunting, which are made of deer skins or birch bark sewed together, which they cover over poles made for that purpose. They are bent over to form a semicircle, which resemble those bent by the Americans for beans or hops to grow on and are covered over as before mentioned, which are very light and easily transported where necessity requires. The best of their cabins have no chimneys, but a small hole to let the smoke through, which they are compelled to stop up in stormy weather, and when it is too cold to put out their fire, their huts are filled with clouds of smoke, which render them insupportable to any but an Indian. The common people lie on bear skins, which are spread on the floor. Their chiefs sleep on beaver skins, which are sometimes elevated. Their utensils are few, and in point of usefulness, very defective. Those to hold water in are made of the skins of animals, and the knotty excrescence of hard wood. Their spoons are manufactured out of wood, or the bones of a buffalo, and are tolerably commodious, and I have often seen them elegant, and sometimes painted. The flatheads and clatsops make baskets out of rushes, that will hold water if they are not very dry. These two nations appear to have more of a mechanical genius than any other people that I have ever been acquainted with, and I think they are not rivaled by any nation on earth when taking into consideration their very limited mechanical instruments. Many of the Indian nations make no use of bread, salt, and spices, and many live to be old without seeing or tasting of either. 
Those that live near the snowy mountains live in a great measure on berries, which clothe the fields in great abundance. The Taukis and other eastern tribes where Indian corn grows take green corn and beans, boil them together with bear's flesh, the fat of which gives flavor and renders it beyond comparison delicious. They call this dish succotash. In general, they have no idea of the use of milk, although great quantities might be collected from buffalo and elk. They only consider it proper for the nourishment of the young of these beasts in their tender state. It cannot be perceived that any inconvenience arises from the disuse of articles so much esteemed by civilized nations, which they use to give a relish and flavor to their food. But on the contrary, the great healthiness of the Indians and the unhealthiness of the sons of Epicurus prove that the diet of the former is the most salutary. They preserve their meat by exposing it to the sun in the summer, and in the winter by putting it between cakes of ice which keep it sweet and free from any putrefactive quality. Their food consists in a great measure of the flesh of the bear, buffalo, and deer, those that reside near the head of the Missouri and Columbia rivers, chiefly make use of the buffalo and elk, which are often seen from fifty to an hundred in a drove. When there are plenty of the last two mentioned beasts, there are but a few of the former, and where there are many of the former, but few of the latter. The mode of roasting their meat is by burning it underground on the side of a hill, placing stones next to the meat. The mode of building to heat it somewhat resembles the fire made under a lime kiln. In this manner they roast the largest of their animals. The mode of cooking smaller pieces is to roast it in stones that are hewn out for the purpose. The flatheads and clatsops procure a root about the size of a potato, which grows spontaneously and in great abundance, and is tolerably palatable, and perfectly agrees with the natives, but made us all sick while we were among them. Before we descended the Columbia River, we were unable to procure game, and had recourse to the flesh of dogs and horses to preserve life, as those roots would without doubt have destroyed us, and we were unable to procure any other kind of food. Many of the tribes of Indians are extremely dirty. I have seen the Maha Indians bring water in the paunches of animals that were very dirty, and in other things equally so. But the Maha chiefs are very neat and cleanly in their tents, apparel, and food. The Indians commonly eat in large parties, so that their meals may, with propriety, be termed feasts. They have not set hours for their meals, but obey the dictates of nature. Many of the tribes dance before or after their meals in devotion to the great spirit for the blessings they receive. Being informed of the mode of our saying grace, they answered that they thought we were stupid and ungrateful, not to exercise our bodies for the great benefits that we received, but muttering with our lips they thought was an unacceptable sacrifice to the great spirit and the stupid mode of the ceremony ridiculous in the extreme. In their feasts the men and women eat apart, but in their domestic way of living they promiscuously eat together. Instead of getting together and drinking as the Americans do, they make use of feasting as a substitute. When their chiefs are assembled together on any occasion, they always conclude with a feast at which their hilarity and cheerfulness know no bounds. No people on earth are more hospitable, kind, and free than the Indians. They will readily share with any of their own tribe the last part of their provisions, and even those of a different nation. Though they do not keep one common stock, yet the community of goods is so prevalent among them, and their generous dispositions render it nearly of the same effect. They strike fire by rubbing together two sticks of wood of a particular kind, which they procure with ease. From other kinds it is impossible to procure fire. 
They are extremely circumspect and deliberate in every word and action. There is nothing that hurries them into any intemperate wrath, but that inveteracy of their enemies, which is rooted in every Indian's breast, and never can be eradicated. In all other instances they are cool and deliberate, taking care to suppress the emotions of the heart. If any Indian has discovered that a friend of his is in danger of being cut off by a lurking enemy, he does not inform him of his danger in direct terms as though he was in fear, but he first coolly asks him which way he is going that day, and having his answer, with the same indifference, tells him that he has been informed that an obnoxious beast lies on the route where he is going, which might probably do him mischief. This hint proves sufficient, and his friend avoids the danger with as much caution as though every design and motion of his enemy had been pointed out to him. This apathy often shows itself on occasions that would draw forth the fervor of a susceptible heart. If an Indian had been absent from his family for several months, either on a war or hunting party, and his wife and children meet him at some distance from his habitation, instead of the affectionate sensations that naturally arise in the breast of more refined beings and are productive of mutual congratulations, he continues his course without looking to the right or left, without paying the least attention to those around him, till he arrives at his house. He there sits down, and with the same unconcern as if he had not been absent a day, smokes his pipe. Those of his friends who followed him do the same. Perhaps it is several hours before he relates to them the incidents that have befallen him during the absence, though perhaps he has left a father, a brother, or a son dead on the field, whose loss he ought to have lamented, or has been successful in the undertaking that called him from home. If an Indian has been engaged for several days in the chase or any other laborious expedition, and by accident continued long without food, when he arrives at the hut of a friend where he knows that his wants will be immediately supplied, he takes care not to show the least symptoms of impatience or betray the extreme hunger that he is tortured with, but on being invited in sits contentedly down and smokes his pipe with as much composure as if his appetite was cloyed and he was perfectly at ease. He does the same if among strangers. This custom is strictly adhered to by every tribe, and they esteem it a proof of fortitude, and think the reverse would entitle them to the appellation of old women. If you tell an Indian that his children have greatly signalized themselves against an enemy, have taken many scalps and brought home many prisoners, he does not appear to feel any great emotions of pleasure on the occasion. His answer generally is, quote, They have done well. End quote, and makes but very little inquiry about it. On the contrary, if you inform him that his children are slain or taken prisoners, he makes no complaints. He only replies, quote, It is unfortunate, unquote, and for some time asks no questions about how it happened. This seeming indifference, however, does not proceed from a want of the natural affections, for notwithstanding they are esteemed savages, I never saw among any other people greater proofs of filial tenderness, and although they meet their wives after a long absence with the stoical indifference just mentioned, they are not, in general, void of conjugal affection. Another peculiarity is observable in their manner of paying visits. If an Indian goes to visit a particular person in a family, he mentions to whom his visit is intended, and the rest of the family immediately retire to the other end of the hut or tent and are careful not to come near enough to interrupt them during the whole conversation. The same method is pursued when a young man goes to pay his addresses to a young woman, but then he must be careful not to let love be the subject of his discourse while the daylight remains. 
They discover an amazing sagacity, and acquire with the greatest readiness anything that depends upon the attention of the mind. By experience and an acute observation, they attain many perfections, to which the Americans are strangers. For instance, they will cross a forest or a plain, which is two hundred miles in breadth, and reach with great exactness the point at which they intend to arrive, keeping during the whole of that space in a direct line, without any material deviations, and this they will do with the same ease, let the weather be fair or cloudy. With equal acuteness they will point to that part of the heavens the sun is in, though it be intercepted by clouds or fogs. Besides this they are able to pursue with incredible facility the traces of man or beast, either on leaves or grass, and on this account it is with great difficulty that a flying enemy escapes discovery. They are indebted for these talents not only to nature, but to an extraordinary command of the intellectual faculties, which can only be acquired by an unremitted attention and by long experience. They are in general very happy in a retentive memory. They can recapitulate every particular that has been treated of in councils, and remember the exact time when they were held. Their belts of wampum preserve the substance of the treaties they have concluded with the neighboring tribes. For ages back, to which they will appeal, and refer with as much perspicuity and readiness as Europeans can to their written records. Every nation pays great respect to old age. The advice of a father will never receive any extraordinary attention from the young Indians. Probably they receive it with only a bare assent, but they will tremble before a grandfather and submit to his injunctions with the utmost alacrity. The words of the ancient part of the community are esteemed by the young as oracles, if they take during hunting parties any game that is reckoned by them uncommonly delicious, it is immediately presented to the eldest of their relations. They never suffer themselves to be overburdened with care, but live in a state of perfect tranquillity and contentment, being naturally indolent. If provisions just sufficient for their subsistence can be procured with little trouble, and near at hand, they will not go far or take any extraordinary pains for it, though by so doing they might acquire greater plenty and of a more estimable kind. Having much leisure time, they indulge this indolence to which they are prone, by sleeping or rambling about among their tents. But when necessity obliges them to take the field, either to oppose an enemy or to procure themselves food, they are alert and indefatigable. Many instances of their activity on these occasions will be given when we treat of their wars. The greatest blemish in their character is that savage disposition which impels them to treat their enemies with a severity that every other nation shudders at. But if they are this barbarous to those with whom they are at war, they are friendly, hospitable, and humane in peace. It may with truth be said of them that they are the worst enemies and the best friends of any people in the world. They are in general strangers to the passion of jealousy and brand a man with folly that is distrustful of his wife. Among some tribes the very idea is not known, as the most abandoned of their young men very rarely attempt the virtue of married women, nor do these put themselves in the way of solicitations. Yet the Indian women in general are of an amorous disposition, and before they are married are not the less esteemed for the indulgence of their passions. The Indians in their common state are strangers to all distinction of property, except in the articles of domestic use which every one considers as his own and increase as circumstances admit. They are extremely liberal to each other, and supply the deficiency of their friends with any superfluity of their own.
In dangers they readily give assistance to any of their band that stand in need of it, without any expectation of return except those just rewards that are always conferred by the Indians on merit. Governed by the plain and equitable laws of nature, every one is rewarded according to his deserts, and their equality of condition, manners, and privileges, with that constant and social familiarity which prevails through every Indian nation, animates them with a pure and patriotic spirit that tends to the general good of the society to which they belong. If any of their neighbors are bereaved by death or by an enemy of their children, those who are possessed of the greatest number of prisoners who are made slaves supply the deficiency, and these are adopted by them and treated in every respect as if they really were the children of the person to whom they are presented. The Indians can form to themselves no idea of the value of money. They consider it, when they are made acquainted with the uses to which it is applied by other nations, as the source of innumerable evils. To it they attribute all the mischiefs that are prevalent among Europeans, such as treachery, plundering, devastation, and murder. They esteem it irrational that one man should be possessed of a greater quantity than another, and are amazed that any honor should be annexed to the possession of it. But that the want of this useless metal should be the cause of depriving persons of their liberty, and that on account of this particular distribution of it, great numbers should be shut up within the dreary walls of a prison, cut off from society of which they constitute a part, exceeds their belief, nor do they fail on hearing this part of the United States system of government related, to charge the institutors of it with a total want of humanity and to brand them with the names of savages, brutes. They show almost an equal degree of indifference for the productions of art. When any of these are shown them, they say, quote, It is pretty, I like to look at it, unquote, and are not inquisitive about the construction of it, neither can they form proper conceptions of its use. But if you tell them a person runs with great agility, is skilled at hunting, can direct with an erring aim a gun, or bends with ease a bow, can dexterously work a canoe, understands the art of war, is acquainted with the situations of the country, and can make his way without a guide through an immense forest, subsisting during this on a small quantity of provisions, they are in raptures. They will listen with great attention to the pleasing tale, and bestow the highest commendation on the hero of it. They make but very little use of physicians and medicine, and consequently they have but very few diseases among them. There is seldom an Indian but what blooms with the appearance of health. They have no midwives among them, and among several tribes, the mother is without the assistance of any person being with her at the time of her delivery, not even a female attendance. Soon after the birth of a child, it is placed on a board, which is covered with a skin stuffed with soft moss. The child is laid on its back and tied to it. To these machines are tied strings, by which they hang them to branches of trees, or, if they do not find trees handy, they lean them against a stump or stone, while they dress the deer or fish, or do any other domestic business. In this position they are kept until they are several months old. When taken out they are suffered to go naked, and are daily bathed in cold water, which render them vigorous and active. The diseases manufactured by the modern sons of dissipation were unknown to them. These hardy disciples of health do not hear of the powerful and painful eloquence of the gout, consumption, and the rest of the long catalogue of typhus diseases, which is preached to the votaries of Epicurus and Bacchus when their repentance is too late. 
An Indian child is generally kept at the breast until it is two years old, and sometimes, though rarely, until three years. The Indians often occasion inflammatory disease by excessive eating after a fast of three or four days when retreating from or pursuing an enemy. The inequality of riches, the disappointment of ambition, and merciless oppressions are not with them exciting causes of insanity. I made great inquiry, but was not able to learn that a single case of melancholy or madness was ever known among them. The dreadful havoc that the smallpox has made has necessarily been mentioned. The mode of curing a fever is by profuse perspiration, which is effected by the patients being confined in a close tent or wigwam over a hole in the earth in which red-hot stones are placed. A quantity of hot water is then thrown upon the stones, which involves the patient in a cloud of vapors and sweat. In this situation he rushes out and plunges into a river of water, and from hence he retires into a warm bed. They never think of giving medicine until they have first made an attempt to remove the disease by sacrifices and prayer, and if the patient recovers soon, it is attributed to the holy management of the priest, and if medicine is to be used as the last alternative, they never administer it without its being accompanied with prayer and a large quantity of meat, which they consume on the fire for a sacrifice. They have a plant among them which has the power of producing abortion. It is related by Mr. Jefferson in his notes on Virginia that the Indians inhabiting the frontiers possess a plant that produces the same effect. End of section 8